Welcome to the Advent Houston podcast. At Advent, our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the Texas Medical Center, Rice University, and the surrounding neighborhood. We're glad that you're here with us today. It's a joy to be uh, with you all and going through another sermon series um, that we are actually beginning a new sermon series for, for the, uh, the Advent season. We're going to be going through a series on the mothers of Jesus, uh, and that is the women that are listed in, uh, in Matthew's genealogy. And so we're going to discuss uh, different women. We're going to discuss Tamar. Uh, that's actually going to be this evening. Um, Rahab, Ruth. Um, and Mary was who we're going to discuss on Christmas Eve. Um, that leaves one out. We're going to be skipping the wife of Uriah, uh, Bathsheba, not um, because she isn't important, but because I think, I, you know, we needed to cut one, and, uh, and I've, I've spent more time on her than the others. So it was really selfish on my part uh, is actually the reason. Um, but I say all that to say also tonight, because we're talking about Tamar, um, and w- w- what is in the Bible is relatively explicit. Uh, if anybody is older than the adventurer's age and would like to go into adventurers, we would more than happy, happily want y'all to go in there. Uh, if that, <laughs> uh, if you're an adult as well, I saw a couple of you. Um, and so feel free uh, to head in there if you'd like, and, um, and you can talk to your parents about it later. Um, I forgot to introduce myself. I'm Taylor Leachman. I'm the pastor here at Advent. And, uh, and so um, would you all please join me in reading uh, this text? We're going to look first at Matthew at the very beginning, uh, and then we're going to read pretty extensively here uh, in, in Genesis. Um, But let's first look at Matthew. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron was the father of Ram. Now to Genesis 38, 1-26. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hurrah. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. And he took her and went into her. And she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, for his firstborn, uh, and, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Going, Go in to your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother." But Onan knew that the offspring would be his, or would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, 
remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hirah the Dulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat, up, uh, sat at the entrance to Anayim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought, she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. And he turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, What, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet, your cord, your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went, to, went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who is at Anayim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the, the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. Well, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she, has been, as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man in whom these belong, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my own, to my own son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. This is the word of the Lord. Let's all pray with me. Father, we thank you. Um, we thank you for your work in this world. We thank you for your work in this family that we're reading about here and in the family of, of your church. And so, Father, I pray as we consider it, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see as we prayed even before. And give us ears to hear. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I don't know, how many of y'all have ever been uh, home for Thanksgiving and it didn't go exactly, you know, uh, as Hallmark movies would have, uh, would have portrayed? I would imagine at least a few of us have been back with an extended family where you get maybe that crazy uncle in the mix who says something a little bit crazy about politics or religion and all of a sudden things begin to spiral out of, out of control, right? A little bit too much wine, a little bit too much food, and a little bit too much discussion and old family patterns begin to rip at the core, right? Um, hopefully that did not happen to any of us this past Thanksgiving. Um, but 
the reason I bring any of this up is that oftentimes, and we experience this in our own families, that whenever we introduce some form of of catalyst into an already dividing group, we divide even further. There was an article by a guy named Peter Weiner, who's both a a Christian and and a political pundit in the Atlantic last year, and it was called The Evangelical Church is Breaking Apart. Um, and he was talking about the massive crisis within the evangelical church in America. And he's saying that, that, that we are at a new sort of reformation point where there's going to be a new split. Um, and that he believes that this actually came about because of one particular thing. He believes it's because of poor catechesis, which is a fancy way of talking about a poor job of the church teaching its congregants the truths of the scriptures. Here's what he has to say. He says, what we're seeing is massive discipleship failure caused by massive catechesis failure. James Ernest, the vice president and editor-in-chief at Erdman's, which is a publisher uh, of Christian books, told me Ernest was one of several figures. uh, Sorry, he, he said that first statement. Ernest was one of several figures I spoke with who pointed to catechism. The process of instructing and informing people through teaching as the source of the problem. See, the evangelical church in the U.S. over the last five decades has failed to form its adherents into disciples. So there's a great hollowness. All that we needed to cause this implosion that we've seen was a sufficiently provocative stimulus. And that stimulus has come. He goes on further and he says, Alan Jacobs, who's a distinguished professor of humanities in the honors program at Baylor, said, culture catechizes. Culture teaches us what matters and what views we should take about what matters. Our current political culture has multiple technologies and platforms for catechizing. Right? Television, radio, Facebook, Twitter, and podcasts among them. People who want to be connected to their political tribe, the people they think that are like them, the people that they think are on their side, you subject themselves to its catechesis all day long, every single day, hour after hour after hour. On the flip side, many churches aren't interested in catechesis at all. They focus instead on entertainment because entertainment is what keeps people in their seats and coins in the offering plate. But as Jacobs points out, even those pastors who really are committed to catechesis get to spend, on average, less than an hour a week teaching their people. Um, So I I say all this to say that I actually have a juggling uh, uh, routine for you right now. Uh, I'm just kidding, not uh, trying to entertain by any means. Um, But rather to say, um, we as a church are known as a family of God. And we are splintering apart in the exact same way that we see here in the scriptures. Just like what we experience at Thanksgiving dinners, churches are splitting, people are leaving, pastors are retiring all of a sudden. And this has begun to make me think and make me actually really nervous about the state of the church within our own, our own country, within our own city. Is there any hope for the family of God when it's fighting Um, beyond anything that we've ever experienced up to this point. And I believe that there is hope. And this passage actually gives us hope. There's hope when it looks like the family of God is eating itself alive. There's hope when it's people 
are broken to the core, God is doing something about it. And so I want to look at this passage with two parts tonight. First, the sin of Judah, and second, the faithfulness of Tamar. So the sin of Judah and the faithfulness of Tamar. But before we do that, we kind of have to have a lot of background info. Um, This passage comes in the middle of the Joseph story in Genesis. Chapter 37 begins the Joseph story. If we remember Abraham uh, is our uh, father Abraham, right? He is the one of whom God has made a promise that he's going to turn Abraham into uh, and and give him offspring that outnumber the stars. That is the blessing that's going to come. He's going to give them land. He's going to give them descendants. So Abraham has a son um, despite his old age, Isaac. Then Isaac, Isaac begets Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons, of whom Joseph was one. And in chapter 37, we see Joseph is the favored son. Joseph is given uh, all of the preferential treatment. He has the ability to, to interpret dreams. Um, he's given this amazing multicolored coat by his dad. And not only that, he seems to also be a little bit of a twerp as, as one of the younger ones. He's telling on his older brothers, and they don't like that very much in, in addition to their own envy. Right? So they have a plan. They hatch a plan that they are going to do something about it. And that's where we first encounter Judah. Right? Judah, along with his other brothers, are the ones who decide, okay, I'm done with Joseph. We are done with this guy. And at first, they're going to kill him. But they have mercy on him, and they decide to throw him into a pit. But Judah has a great idea. He's like, we can all profit from this, okay? Let's all profit from this because some Midianites are going to come by, and we're going to sell Joseph to the Midianites, and we're all going to be good, okay? And so that is the context with which we come to chapter 38, and we see what's going on here. Because out of this circumstances, Judah now leaves his family. He leaves his family and he goes to live with the Canaanites and to be one of the Canaanites. And this is meant to be shocking to us. Shocking to the point that we're now wondering, what just happened? Right? Was, was the event of selling his brother off, was that the catalyzing event that sent him into Canaan? Was it because, you know, his dad was now weeping over and over and over again for Joseph and didn't love him? Is that why he left and he's fleeing into the arms of the Canaanites? We don't exactly know what it is, but we know that there is a massive rift in the family. And it's going to take chapters and chapters in Genesis to see exactly what God is going to do about it. But there's hope at the end of this passage. So that's our context for Genesis chapter 38. So what is it about Judah that's wrong here? How do we even begin to understand what's going on in the cultural context? Well, first we see that actually fleeing was one of the very first elements of Judah's sin. Whatever makes him go away, verse 2 makes it clear that he is fleeing and that he is selfish. It says he goes to live with the Canaanites and he sees the daughter of Shua. Right? It doesn't say that he, you know, all of a sudden had these, these beautiful God-sent feelings for Shua, that he loved the spirit that God placed within her. No, it says very um, kind of crassly, he saw her and he took her. Right? And that leads to the second part of his sin. 
Right? He is selfish, but particularly he is, he's sexually selfish. Throughout the story, Judah is identified by his sexual desire. He lusts after the daughter of Shua, and it doesn't really tell us much else. Right? Demonstrating that he wasn't interested in her for real. Right? He wasn't interested in her for her. He wasn't interested in who she actually was, but just in what she looked like. But somehow, God is gracious to, to Judah nonetheless. As the story goes on, he and his wife have three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And Ur is the oldest, and Ur marries Tamar. But early in the marriage, Ur dies. Right? So, so now we get into the part where it gets really tricky for us. Right? This is culturally very out of step with what we currently live in. But Onan is supposed to fulfill the biblical duties as, an older, as a brother, uh, the Leviite duty. Onan's sin, though, reflects the exact same sin as Judah. He cares very little for his brother. And he cares very little for, for his now wife, as he is now married to Tamar. Right, similar, uh, similar to the Joseph story, like Joseph's brothers, Onan now doesn't actually want anything to do with his own brother, with his own family relationships. Now, Onan was supposed to marry his brother's wife so that through him, his brother would actually have descendants. Um, he might actually have offspring. And this actually comes to us in the Bible. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5 and 6, it says this. It says, If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside of her family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she, shall, uh, whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. You know, this sounds so messed up to us. Right? It sounds so wrong. It sounds so backwards to what it, our current cultural moment. But it was, it was a way of not only carrying on uh, uh, the, the, the brother's name, but it was also a way of providing for the widow. Right, your retirement plan back then was not a 401k or a 403b if you work in the nonprofit world, right? No, your retirement plan was actually your own children. They would work for you when you could no longer work for yourself. So if you were without children, you were destitute and you were without hope. So Onan decides he doesn't care. He isn't going to have any mercy on Tamar. He pretends that he's going to fulfill his duty. He marries Tamar, but it says that Onan, every time that he lay with Tamar, he would spill his seed on the ground. Right? He's fine with his husband's duties, but only if he is in complete control of the outcome. Right? Sexual act is good. He's all good with that. But, you know, babies are bad as far as he is concerned. Um, but that's not the chief reason behind his selfishness. It's, it's actually not chiefly sexual here. It's actually financial. See, if Onan fathers a son for his brother, then all of a sudden the portion of his inheritance changes. Right? See, Ur has no children. He has no descendants. So right now, Onan and his brother are the only ones that will share in a portion of Judah's inheritance. Right? So it's divided amongst two. 
But if he fathers a son for Ur, now all of a sudden it's divided amongst three. So he is incredibly selfish here. Onan is trying to have his cake and to eat it too. He can do fractions. He knows better than the American public that one half is actually bigger than one third. I don't know if if y'all saw that statistics that the the quarter pounder uh, failed. Oh, wait, no. It was a third pound burger failed because people thought it was smaller than the quarter pounder. Um, Anyways, he can do fractions. That's my point. He's trying to enjoy the physical benefits of his forced marriage to Tamar without having to give up any of the finances, without having to give up anything for himself. See, he has been catechized by his father. In all the same ways that Judah believes negatively about who God is and what God has done or what God has not done for him, in all the ways that Judah has modeled selfishness, or maybe Judah even has explicitly taught Onan that he needs to worry about himself, look out for number one. He has been catechized over and over again by his dad, and he is now living it out. He has seen it modeled. He has heard it taught. And his selfishness leads to God's very real judgment against him. So he too, like his sinful brother Ur, dies. And in Judah's reaction to Onan and to Onan's death, we we see the third part of Judah's sin here, which is his insistence on blaming other people rather uh, than looking first to himself or, as is the case here, looking at his sons. He never blames anyone else. He begins to believe that Tamar is is the bad luck charm. She's the reason that everything is going wrong. She's the reason his sons keep dying. So he decides that he's going to withhold his youngest son from her. He lies. He tells her to go back home and to live with her parents. And actually, um, biblically speaking, even even still, she... uh, 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 Let me get there in a second. Um, He begins to believe that Tamar is bad. He withholds his son from her, even though he is supposed to send his son to be with her. He sends her back to her parents' house, which is utterly disgraceful. Judah doesn't understand who God is. He doesn't understand who he is, a sinner in need of God's grace. Because he can't see that he needs God's grace. He's unwilling to show that to those who are around him. Uh, He's so blinded to his own sin that he can't, uh, that that he, he, he becomes even quicker to identify the shortcomings of others. Never once does he stop to wonder if he or maybe his sons are to blame for what's going on with Tamar. No, he wants to continually cast, cast blame toward her. It's definitely Tamar's fault, right? And how easy it is for us to do the exact same thing. Right, for us to slip into a belief that God isn't isn't that good that he's withholding something from us or to believe that all of the terrible things that are going on around us are someone else's fault or to believe that the terrible things are because of of a bad luck charm or a decision that someone else made or uh, a policy that was enacted by someone at your school, at your office, or at your hospital. When we believe those sorts of things, we begin to treat other people differently and we begin to live differently. Right? We hoard all that we have where we're less likely to give of our own money or our own time. 
We're less likely to give our abilities to bless others. Maybe we begin to treat others poorly in particular. We use them for our own benefit. We don't maybe give others the credit that they deserved from a group project or something that we've worked alongside of others with. Or we look at others as sexual objects to be consumed. Or we look at others as dollar signs that can help our own bottom line. How we treat the least of these around us indicates exactly what we think about God. If we believe that he is gracious and that we need a gracious savior, then we'll treat others with the kind of grace that we believe he's bestowed upon us. But often we look just like Judah, believing that we live in a dog-eat-dog world and so we need to go out there and eat other dogs. But thankfully, the story doesn't end with Judah's selfishness. We see the faithfulness of Tamar and God's work through her. See, Tamar is an innocent bystander through this entire episode. She's a Canaanite, um, so she's an outsider with, uh, with, from the biblical family. She's a woman. She's a widow. And she's been mistreated again and again and again. But there is a faithfulness to her actions. She desires to give her an heir. Um, so she takes matters into her own hands. You see, it wasn't actually a, a biblical warrant at this time, but there was a Hittite law at the time that if your brother or if the brother of your widow, sorry, if, if the brother decided not to marry you, the father was supposed to step in to supply the heir. And so she's living by that particular Hittite law. And so while she has decided, okay, Judah, you're going to send me away yet again. You're doing the wrong thing yet again, not only by God's law, but also even by the cultural law of the time. I'm going to take matters into my own hands and I'm going to fulfill this duty. She desires to give an heir and she recognizes that Judah has no intention of fulfilling on his obligations. So she pretends to be a prostitute. And Judah offers to pay her as a prostitute. He offers to give her a goat. Um, but as a way of kind of demonstrating that he, he has the goods to pay her, because uh, he didn't have the goat with him at the time, he is going to kind of offer a, a validity of payment, so to speak, right? I'm good for it. And so uh, I'm going to hand you my driver's license is essentially what he's doing here. He's handing his signet. He's handing over his staff. And after it's done, she keeps them, and she goes away. She vanishes. Judah tries to pay for the transaction, but he can't find her. Right? Um, and, and he tries to make it sound a little bit better for himself than it actually is. When he sends someone to go make payment on his behalf, he's like, uh, it's not just like a prostitute. It's a cult prostitute. It's okay, right? I'm, I'm, I was participating in the religious life of the community. So he's trying to make himself sound a little better. And then ultimately, he decides this is too embarrassing for him. So he's not even going to do it and not even going to worry about payment anymore. He's going to stop searching for her. Until all of a sudden, he hears about Tamar. And he hears about the fact that she's now with child. And now he has an excuse to do what he always wanted. To get rid of that bad luck charm that somehow has gotten into his family. He doesn't even want to ask any more questions. He's going to go for Tamar and he wants her burned. 
It's only then that Tamar actually uh, reaches out to him and says, by these things, you will know who the husband is. See, and what what Moses is doing here as as the author of Genesis is he's very clearly tying what's happening in Genesis 38 with what happened in Genesis 37. See, when Joseph was murdered, the brothers took his coat. They took uh, the personal items of Joseph to prove that it was him who had falsely been murdered and been kicked out of the family. But now... By the Lord's providence, Tamar is actually doing the exact same thing to Judah. See, the Lord's providentially woven all of this together to soften a heart that so desperately needs to be softened. Judah is so hard of heart that he cannot see his own hand in front of him. It's only in this particular moment that he begins to recognize how foolish he has been. As he is handed his own signet, as he's handed his own staff, he sees she has been far more faithful than him. And this is the very catalyzing point that begins Judah's repentance, where he all of a sudden is even named later in the biblical story as a model of faith. How on earth can this guy become a model of faith for us? Well, it's because of the work of Tamar in his life, actually, She's the catalyzing effect that begins to turn him back toward the Lord. As he can't escape this lie any longer. And so he has a genuine moment of repentance. Okay, so what is the point of this story? Um, What do we have to learn from it? Is it merely that we shouldn't be like Judah? Um, that he's just kind of our negative example? Don't don't, um, leave the family. Don't uh, go and... Use other people uh, for your own good. Don't, don't do all the sexual things here that Judah is doing or that Onan was doing. Um, no. At the end of this passage, we see uh, that, that is far. Um, that, that, that the entire point of this is to demonstrate where the line of David comes from. The line of David being the true king that all of Israel needed and wanted. But ultimately, we begin to see as we read through Matthew's gospel, that is that that line through Jesus, through whom Jesus comes. We see that Jesus, our God and creator, chose this line, this family, to be his uh, descendants, to be a part of his family. He chose Tamar for a great-great-great-grandmother. He chose Judah for a great-great-great-grandfather. This is his family. And this should give us hope. This should give us real and actual hope that no matter who you are, because if this, is, if this is the type of people that God has put into his own biological family, then that means that there's hope for all of us. If he can turn a foreign woman who's been abused, who's been overlooked, who's been uncared for, and he can turn her in to the great-great-great-grandmother of the second person of the Trinity— then he too can look upon us in our lowliest of circumstances. When we feel like we are looked over and nobody cares about us, we can know that the Lord sees us. And not only that, if he can turn a hardened man like Judah into a moment and give him a moment of genuine and real repentance where he softens and begins to be a model of faith, then he too can soften my heart that consistently feels too hard toward the world right? God can invite any and all of us into his family. 
He invites the sexually broken. He invites the hedonist amongst us who wants only what he wants or she wants. And he tells us that no matter what is in your past, you are wanted by our Lord, by our God. No matter how hard-hearted you are, Jesus can work and he can soften it. He can and he does show us that forgiveness by his grace, by the fact that Jesus has come and he will come again. And so in light of all of that, when I ask the question, is there any hope for the family of God that feels like it's splintering apart? The answer is yes, that he can take hardened people like me who are probably doing as much to hurt the, the issues within our own church as anything else. And he can cause us to repent and to believe he will do it because he has done it in Jesus Christ. Would y'all pray with me? Sorry. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you love hard-hearted people like us, like Judah. Lord, that you do not overlook those who are often overlooked. Those amongst us who feel like we really, we aren't seen. We have to kind of manipulate everything into being. Lord, may we know that, that you are ultimately in control, that you are sovereign, and that you are making all things right and good. May we trust you in that. For Father, for all of us here who are struggling to know who Jesus is, I pray, uh, I pray that you would help us to know, that you would help us to see just how good he is. And Lord, may we turn to you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.